Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Compared to Europe and other industrialized countries, the United States has an unusually violent labor history. In the 1920s, the once lively union movement was almost snuffed out by brutal business and government oppression. But in the 1930s, following the Great Depression, labor movements fought back. They secured many gains for workers still enjoyed today, such as the 40-hour work week, overtime pay, medical and retirement benefits. Key to these successes was the leadership provided by the U.S. Communist Party. Although small in number, they were generally the most committed, militant, and fearless activists and organizers. Who were these Communist Party members? How did they assert such control over our labor history? Where did they go? Let's discuss. Well, hello, Greg. Glad I'm back. And, and I see you uh, brought a, a guest with you, uh, Dr. Karen, who is the go-to person on uh, issues with labor history. And uh, specifically, um, uh, we want to be talking about some, uh, some of the things in his book, uh, The Communist Party and the Auto Workers Union. So uh, welcome. Uh, can I call you Roger? Is that okay? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, Roger, I've, I've, I've uh, tracked you on, um, on the internet, and you are quite the... Uh, sole source, if you will, for the history of the labor movement and how the communists have influenced this movement so profoundly in our country. And although Greg knows this through his background, I knew nothing of this. And so this has been a real exciting uh, time for me to learn about this. And I uh, I think today I'd like you to maybe take us through uh, some of the some of the labor history and bring us up to date. And it's certainly what happened in the early turn of the century and after the Great Depression is still applicable to what's going on today. How's that sound? That sounds good. Uh, I want to thank you and Greg for this uh, invitation to discuss the book, which has just been uh, republished after being out of print for uh, several decades. Uh, Unlike others kind of book talks, I'm not interested in uh, promoting the book because I have any uh, financial reward from this, but because I, I think the ideas are as valuable now as when I, I wrote it. And uh, I, I would say, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll begin by, by saying two ideas that kind of uh, resided behind the writing of this book. Uh, the first idea, you know, comes from Marx himself, who said, uh, we have one uh, science, which is the study of history. When he said we, he mean we who are socialists or trying to transform this capitalist society, we have one science, which is the study of history. I think that remains true today. If you want to make historical change, you have to view history as a science, as a laboratory and study what went before, what succeeded, what didn't succeed. So that's in a way that's kind of motivated the study uh, 40 years ago. The second thing I think as to why this particular study, the auto workers and communists remains relevant 
are an important. Uh, I would point out, start with two facts. That is, if you look at the labor movement 100 years ago and look at it today, uh, look at the labor movement in the 1920s, 11% of the workers were organized. Uh -huh. You look at the labor movement today, about 11% are organized. But in between that was a, it was not a, 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 a steady figure. In the 1930s, that figure jumped. Uh, and nearly 30% of the workers in the country were organized by the uh, 1953, over a third were organized. Uh, the same thing, uh, another snapshot, if you look at the history in terms of strikes, in the 1930s, every year there were 800, 900, up to 2,000 strikes a year. Do you, know many, do you know how many strikes there were last year of over mm -hmm. a thousand workers? Less than 10. Oh my gosh. In fact, in, fact, in the last 10 years, there's been only one year where there was over 10 strikes. So there's been a, a precipitous decline in the percentage of workers organized since the 1930s and a precipitous decline in class struggles and, and strikes. Now, what I would suggest is that to understand a, such a phenomenon, of course, many things go into it, but one of the most important factors that determined these two facts was the Communist Party and then the decline of the Communist Party and its influence in the labor movement. And I think the auto workers is a prime case study of this. And I, it's, it's like the little engine that could. It was a small group of people, but they were the most powerful in organizing and motivating and and um anyway it, it it struck me how how much of our labor history was shaped by these group of people that we really don't know we don't know much about well and, you know i would add that it's it's a not because it's a buried history it's not because uh it's been overlooked it's been consciously uh put aside, it's been consciously uh, thwarted, it's been consciously kept from people, particularly in the labor movement, uh, it effectively was a, it's a history purged. And that's why I think Roger's book is so exciting, uh, was and is so exciting, it's so exciting to see it uh, available again. So Roger, let's, let's just start and hit a couple of points here. In 1919, are, are you in Pittsburgh right now or are you in New York? Uh, Jersey City. Jersey City. Okay. In, in 1919, there was the great steel strike in Pittsburgh. And maybe you or Greg could talk about what were the conditions like for a steel worker at that time in, in Pittsburgh, and then tell us a little bit about the history of this strike and how it Kind of primed the pump, if you will, for future future activity, if that's correct term. I'll let Greg comment on that, but let, let me just, if if you uh, permit me, put that steel struggle of 1919 and kind of the larger struggle and kind of related to the auto workers. So in 1919, 1920, again, what you have was 11% of the uh, workers of the country in unions. 
but the vast majority of workers who were not in unions were increasingly part of uh, mass industrial uh, industries like steel, like auto, like rubber, like chemical, like electrical production, but they weren't uh, uh, organized. Those 11% that were organized were mainly skilled workers, craft workers, uh, carpenters, plumbers, iron molders, et cetera, mainly in the construction industry. And they belong to craft unions in the uh, AFL. Now, the, uh, what's really remarkable is that not only were the mass of workers not organized, not only were the mass of workers unskilled and semi-skilled workers like those in steel and those in auto, but the leaders of the AFL, who uh, in the early 1920s was Samuel Gompers and later in the 1920s and early 30s was William Green, did not even believe in organizing these industrial workers. They believed that they were really unorganizable because they didn't have any skills. So there was no attempt made really to organize these industrial workers outside of a few in garment and, and, the, and the mine workers. So the, one of the key um, lessons you might say or a striking phenomenon of the 1919 steel strike was that a few people around William Z. Foster decided to try to organize these steel workers and, the, and even though that, that strike went on for four or five months and it was eventually defeated, what it showed is that these workers, who by the way, consisted of about 24, 25 or 26 different nationalities could be organized, could conduct a concerted struggle for months. And even though they were that struggle eventually lost, it showed that the idea of organizing these mass industrial workers, and leading them in class struggles and strikes could work. I think that's the significance of that the 1919 strike. Maybe Greg would like to add something to that. Well, just to, just repeat the uh, comments you made earlier, uh, Roger, that uh, it was a laboratory. I mean, using that uh, terminology, it became a laboratory for what became what came later. And it showed many people that uh, uh, again, they were ethnic people, you know, there's, there's lessons here about immigration because so many of these people were Italian, Polish, Eastern European, Southern uh, European uh, immigrants who came here, spoke little, were, were gathered up in, in their own ghettos. The Catholic Church was the centerpiece of that. So they were difficult to organize, but they also brought a lot of uh, class consciousness with them from Europe. And so that added another dimension into this organization. But it was a laboratory for Foster and the people around Foster to learn how to, how to go forward. Was in, if I'm not mistaken, Foster was kind of a, a syndicalist before this. Uh, his thinking emerged uh, from that syndicalism. He learned from that and he developed it further. And one of the factors that go into the uh, 30s and human organization is the ability to learn from these experiences. And it, and back then you'd have a person die a day in the steel mills and they just would grab another one off the line. And uh, because it was an exploitation, just like uh, Greg and your uh, family history in the coal mines in, in central part of the country, they, these people were exploited horribly, uh, uh, often working seven days a week, uh, no, no ability to really have any one of their commands uh, problems at work presented to the employer, and it was a it was just a brutality that was quite.
quite remarkable. And so in 1919, they, they had enough then and organized this strike. And the, is what you're saying, Roger, is that it gave people the realization that you can organize people other than these higher, more technical uh, labor, you can organize. And that was the lesson, part of the lesson from that strike. Right. You know, uh, go, go ahead. ahead. I just say just to, to draw the connection between uh, this 1919 steel strike and uh, communist and auto in the 1930s is that uh, I mean a key element in this was uh, Foster himself who was uh, a leader of the steel strike who was a fantastic uh, organizer and a fantastic speaker and uh, who could establish this trust with uh, the workers and who was even able to work with the AFL at that point and to get the, at least their nominal support for the struggle. But what happens in 1919 is uh, Foster joins the Communist Party. Uh, now the Communist Party had just been formed in 1919. Uh, it was formed by left wing of the Socialist Party as well as by members of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And uh, they split with the Socialist Party and decided to form a, a Communist Party for a couple of reasons. One, they were motivated by this idea of what, what uh, a communist is as, as Karl Marx defined, that a, that a communist was a person who believed that the history of the world was the history of class struggle and that communists had to support the workers in this class struggle. And they were motivated by uh, Lenin's idea in 1902 that he wrote in uh, What is to be Done, that what was needed was what he called a party of a new type. A new type, he meant a, a socialist party that would not just be an electoral party, would not just be an educational organization, would not be a discussion group, but no, a party of activists. That was the key idea, a party of activists, a party of people who would organize, teach, lead people in struggle, and who would belong to an organization that was centralized and disciplined. And so that's what the Communist Party represented in 1919, and how it differed from the, the Socialist Party. So, so this young Communist Party, representing a few tens of thousands of workers who had been socialist or IWW, but they attracted to it the leading industrial unionist of his time, William Z. Foster. And Foster then uh, established a, an organization within the Communist Party called the Trade Union uh, Educational League and later the Trade Union Unity League. And through a series of pamphlets and books, he wrote about the 1919 steel strike and the lessons of that strike and what it meant for successful organizing of industrial workers. And these ideas were embodied in the TUEL and in Foster's writings. And he kind of educated a whole generation of young activists in the trade union who then became active in auto and rubber and steel and other places. Okay. So I, I wrestled in high school and I uh, was a fairly good wrestler and my hero was Dan Gable. And Dan Gable went through, he was from Iowa. He went through all of his high school and never lost a match. He went through all of his college and 
the very last match that he wrestled in, he lost at the end of his college career. Hmm. And he then went on to become the greatest wrestler of all time. We got a gold medal, and I'm not so sure that not one person even scored on him when he went to the Olympics. And he said, the best thing that happened to me was losing that match because it gave me a focus. It let me realize what was, you know, it, um, it motivated me. And I see a little bit about, you know, if you just looked at 1919, they, they, they lost. The strike was broken. Uh, no one was organized. They didn't get any of their demands. And yet that singular event seemed to have lit the fire that really created our labor movement. Am I, am I being too, uh, am I exaggerating there or do you think that's a correct statement? No, I think that's uh, more or less correct. Yes, I think so. And I, I, I think we're at a, you might say uh, another little moment like that in history right now with the Amazon workers in Bessemer, uh, Alabama trying to organize. Now they're, they voted, the vote's being counted right now. Uh, there's six or 7,000 workers, 85% of them uh, African-American. This will be, Amazon represents what the, the largest or the second largest uh, employer in the company, just country, just as US Steel and uh, General Motors represented the largest employers of their time. So if these workers decide to go with the union, this is going to be a, a very, uh, uh, promising moment for American labor. It's going to right. show that these kind of, uh, you know, post-industrial workers, <laughs> uh, delivery people and warehouse workers can be organized in an industrial union. But the point is, even if they don't win this time, it's going to be, it's going to be close. And I right. think whether they win or not, there are going to be lessons drawn and the, the union movement is not going to go away. It's shown the potential of organizing these Amazon workers. So win, lose, or draw, their lessons gonna be drawn just like the 1919 strike and this struggle will continue. So Foster was a prolific writer. He, he, he and he used this period of time to uh, gather strength and organize. What, how was a, a communist different in America, in US, from the communists that uh, were um, uh, shaping the Soviet Union at that time, and how were and how were they connected? They both had Marx as their foundation, but was there you know compare and contrast? What's the? Well, uh, I think the most striking thing, certainly one of the most striking things about the environment in which communists worked in this country in the 1920s, and 1930s, and 1940s is that communists never enjoyed what you could call full citizenship in the labor movement or in the country really. That is to say, and, th and this was unlike in England, unlike in France, unlike in Italy, unlike even in, in Spain before uh, fascism. Um, that is to say, communists in the United States in the 1920s, the 1930s, and 1940s could not operate as open communists in the labor movement because they, uh, many unions had constitutions that wouldn't allow officers to be communists or wouldn't even allow members to be communists. So uh, it meant having to function in this conspiratorial semi-secret way 
But in spite of this, the communists were incredibly effective, as you, as you pointed out. But this was a major difference, though, that American communists face. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the anti-communism in this country, the environment in which communists had to operate, was stronger in this country than in any other uh, capitalist country outside of fascism. <laughs> outside mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. Germany or Italy or Spain or maybe uh, uh, Tsarist Russia, you know, um, that that is the kind of circumstances in which these American communists had to operate, which gives them even more uh, more credit that they were able to succeed as well as they did in this extremely hostile environment. Now, in terms of the uh, the relations with the uh, Soviet communists, that what I would say is is this. In the 1920s and 1930s, we're talking about less than two decades after the Russian Revolution, that the Russian Revolution, the Soviet Communist Party, and Stalin himself had immense prestige in this country amongst not only communists, but other leftists as well. This was the first country, the first movement, the first party that had overthrown capitalism. And not only that, they were very rapidly taking this peasant, illiterate, backward country and moving it into the first ranks of industrialized and agricultural and even military powers in the world. And secondly, in spite of their own internal problems, they were the only ones giving support in the struggle against fascism in the 1930s then occurring in Spain. So in other words, you just can't overestimate the kind of prestige and influence that Stalin and the Soviet Communist Party had on the American communists as a source of inspiration, really. I think the closest thing would be, you know, if you could remember the kind of um, influence and prestige that Che Guevara and Fidel right. Castro had in this country in the 1960s and 1970s. Right. I think that one kind of um, ironic, you might say, uh, indication of this prestige was uh, the life of Walter Ruther himself. Walter Ruther, who later became president of the UAW and threw the communists out of the UAW, the leading anti-communist labor leader in the country after World War II. But in the 1930s, he was a socialist. And in the midst of the uh, depression, he and his brother Roy went to the Soviet Union looking for work and ended up working in the Gorky Ford plant there. Well, it gives you some idea of the kind of uh, prestige that uh, Soviet communists had for American leftists in the 1930s. And, and was the communication mechanism primarily their writings and their pamphlets and, and with the foundation of the Marxist um, philosophy? Was look, that look, I mean, let's be, let's be frank. Uh, uh, communists in the 30s and 20s had a communist international. They had an international that linked various communist parties. There were joint meetings, there was collaboration, there was uh, um, uh, mutual discussion, planning, an attempt to create a, a singular line, a singular position to push the goals forward. It makes all the sense in the world. I mean, in the West, you have NATO doing that as in opposition to communism. Uh, and that was there. And of course, uh, that was the basis for charges of uh, Moscow puppetry and you know Moscow pulling the strings and all this other nonsense. But essentially, uh, there were these links and uh, the collaboration, and they make all the sense 
in the world to anyone that has a common goal. Right. But of yeah. course, it's portrayed, it's portrayed certainly in the 50s, in the 60s, and even today as somehow a puppetry, as though the Moscow pulled the strings and, and the US Communist Party had to uh, uh, fall in line. Uh, not only Roger, but others have pointed out in terms of when the, when the uh, US Communist Party began to move towards a more of a popular front notion or united front came at a time when the Communist International was not directed in that fashion. So there was a, each country had its own unique conditions that it had to deal with. And that was respected by the Communist International. Yeah, but it's interesting you said that the, you know, we think of the red baiting and the extremely well-organized uh, denigration that occurred during the 50s, but that was that was occurring also prior to that, that they had to have, keep their head low in a way, uh, so. Sure. So get, get us up to the depression. So the depression happened, the Great Depression, and Roosevelt and and that seemed to spark an awful lot of um, conflict within the labor unions in the summer of 34. There were huge strikes all over the South leading up to the, you know, the issue of the great sit down, <laughs> the great sit down strike that you wrote so extensively about in, in your book. Set the background of how the depression and the events in the depression um, acted as a catalyst for for that next explosion of uh, of organizing uh, that, that occurred. Okay, well, I, I think the best way to understand the explosion of the 1930s and the role of the communists in that explosion is again to kind of uh, step back and. Uh, compare the conditions of 1931 and the conditions of 1941. And that, that kind of creates the, the problematic for us. So again, you, know, you look at American labor and the country in 1931. The depression had started in 1929. So we're two years into this depression. Uh, again, the uh, only 11% or so of the workers are organized nearly a third of the workforce is out of work or working part-time. Uh, and all of those large industries, um, auto, steel, uh, rubber, electric production, uh, et cetera, are mass production workers unorganized. And, um, in the midst of this depression now, with nearly one third of the workers out of work or working part-time, there's no unemployment insurance, there's no retirement, uh, uh, there's no minimum wage, there's no right to organize. You do not have a right to organize. An employer can fire you for claiming that you want a union. There's no legal protection at all. Um, and as I said before, the AFFL, led by William Green, opposed attempts to organize industrial workers. They opposed strikes. They thought uh, that progress had to come through cooperating with the employers, worker management cooperation. The AFL opposed unemployment insurance. They thought this was a dole that would weaken the character of uh, mm -hmm. unions, etc. Okay, that's 1931. Now you jump ahead 10 years, 1941. 
all of the workers in the major mass production industries are organized. They have unions. Now, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, U.S. Steel, Republic Steel, International Harvester, General Electric, etc. in industrial unions. You have workers have a right to organize now with the National Labor Relations Act. The, right. the law kind of is on their side. They have a minimum wage. They have pensions through the Social Security Act. Uh, well, how did this come about? How did this change come about? Now, it's like any large social change. There are many factors that go into it. Uh, but one thing we can clearly say, it did not come about spontaneously. Right. It did not come about because the employers, the capitalists suddenly realized, you know, unions are a great idea. You know, <laughs> we're gonna recognize these unions. No, did not come about because employers thought, ah, it's great that workers shouldn't starve. We'll give them unemployment insurance. It didn't come about because the AFL leaders like Green suddenly had a revelation either because they thought, ah, yeah, let's, let's go out and organize those industrial workers. Foster showed that we could do it. Nah, let's do it. No, that did not. they didn't suddenly change their mind and decide that, uh, that unemployment insurance is not a dole. No, we need it. No. It came about because of grassroots struggle. Uh, and what do I mean by that? I mean petitions demonstrations, protests, organizing, strikes. Uh, uh, and these mass demonstrations and mass uh, organizing at the bottom, more often than not, was led by communists. Uh -huh. Because right. in 1931, you look at the entire country, who was advocating the organization of industrial workers, only communists? who was advocating that workers in order to gain had to strike, had to be able to withhold their labor power. Only communists were taking that position. Who was advocating that workers needed unemployment insurance? They said unemployment insurance even controlled by the workers themselves and paid through, through by taxes. Only the communists were taking this position. Who was calling for minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the communists had the stage to themselves in terms of uh, these ideas, and they organized around these ideas. For example, in the AFL, the communists contacted about 20,000 locals of the AFL and asking them to support a petition supporting unemployment insurance. This came from the rank and file, from the grassroots, and eventually, Green and the AFL leadership changed their mind on this. The same with industrial unions. Workers led by communists started organizing industrial unions and auto and steel and other places, and then started demanding their own uh, unions. And eventually some of the leaders of the AFL, like uh, John L. Lewis, the head of the mine workers, changed their mind on this. But again, this these this, this is like a ten. This is a ten-year period exactly. That literally set the foundation for things that we take for granted so much today. Just right. This, yeah. And it did not happen suddenly. It did not happen spontaneously. It again happened through these movements at the base. This grassroots movement led more often than that by communists. So go, let's let's take let's go to the uh, sit down strike in GM Flint, Michigan, in thirty seven. Then, mm -hmm. as one of these events, and I, 
I don't know, uh, Greg or Roger, tell me, you know, normally when I think of a strike, I think of people outside the picket line and people go cross the picket line or don't, but tell me the sit, tell me what, how the sit down was different and, and how that was uh, that, that established as a technique that was proved so successful. Tell me about that. Uh, you want to jump in there, Greg? Or no, no, no. This is uh, this is where your book is so beautiful. I, I think you, you can tell this better than anyone. <laughs> well, uh, that, I, again, uh, I, 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 you'll see a certain pattern to my answering your questions. I guess I always begin by backing up a little bit. Uh, but the uh, I, I think that the operation of the communist in auto. Uh, was not only a microcosm of how communists were operating in other industries and other unions, but it provided the turning point, if you will, the key event in the whole organization of uh, industrial workers. And uh, so, so let me jump ahead, then I'll, then I'll go back. But again, you look at uh, before this sit-down strike, which went on for some 44 days in the General Motors plants, the largest industrial corporation in the world, and the workers seized the key plants in uh, Cleveland and Flint, Michigan, and other places, and refused to leave. And eventually, after uh, over a month of this sit-down strike, uh, General Motors agreed to recognize the union and negotiate a contract. Now, before this sit-down strike, no major industry, no major corporation, no major capitalist had agreed to recognize their union and mass production industry. After this victory and General Motors, industry after industry uh, uh, capitulated, starting with U.S. Steel, uh, who had fought uh, Foster in 1919. And essentially, the Byron Taylor, the head of U.S. Steel, said, "If General Motors, the largest corporation in the world, couldn't resist this uh, union, well, well, we're not going to resist it either." And he said, "Plus, if this strike uh, movement continues, it might turn into a revolution." Right. So, anyway, this was the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. This uh, this unleashed the dam of industrial unionism. This victory in General Motors. Now let's back up. How did you even get to that point of that General Motors sit-down strike? Again, it took uh, 15 years at least of organizing in the auto industry to bring this about by the uh, communists. They started there because the AFL refused to organize industrial workers. They started their own independent union, the Auto Workers Union, and they put out their own newspapers. Again, kind of propagating this idea that workers and bosses have different ideas, different interests, Workers need their own unions, and all workers have the same interests, black, white, immigrant, native-born, men, women, we're all in this together. Again, these were uh, revolutionary ideas. Radical you know? ideas, yeah. Radical ideas. But so for uh, a decade and a half, the communists promoted these ideas, and uh, they led some major, that, of course, their, their effort to organize the unions were uh, badly disrupted by the depression or right. most workers found themselves on the street. But that did not stop the communists from organizing. They turned their organizing into organizing the unemployed. 
and they led major uh, demonstrations demanding relief, demanding unemployment insurance, uh, putting workers' furniture back in their homes when they were evicted, marching on the Ford plant in March 1930, demanding worker wages, etc. And then when uh, employment picked up again, they went back to organizing unions and organizing what were called federal labor unions. These were kind of industrial unions within the AFL, uh, but linking these uh, FLUs together and having them demand industrial unions, at, which would engage in militant activity against the bosses. So. Uh, and, they, and the communist, was it Foster that came up with the sit-down model where you basically just shut the machines down and refuse to leave and, and take over factories? Well, uh, I tried to trace back where this idea came from and how, uh, and I wasn't uh, too successful on it. It's like a, a lot of things. I think that the ideas were in the air. I think one of the first examples of uh, this idea being in the air was uh, French workers. But actually, the IWW, even in this country, had engaged in brief sit-down strikes before World War One uh, in some plants. Okay, but so the, but was... the most recent ones were in the early 30s in France. And there, I think it showed kind of the advantage that communists had. They were those sit-down strikes in France were led by communists. And so you had communists in this country who were aware of what their comrades were doing abroad. So I, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, that's kind of how that idea was transmitted to uh, Americans here. And uh, of course, the, uh, what had happened in previous strikes as when the auto workers had gone on strike in 1933 in Briggs and other places, as that the employers brought in the police, broke up the lines, and hired scabs. There are a lot of unemployed right. people out there. And uh, so the idea of sitting in this plant yes. and yes. protecting your jobs uh, seemed like a brilliant idea, you yeah. know, and a way yeah. of preventing the use of police to break up picket lines, arrest strike leaders, and to bring in uh, scabs to, to make things go. So these ideas were in the air. They were picked up and uh, by communists who then uh, organized this. And when we speak about organizing, you don't run a strike like this for 44 days inside a plant without a tremendous amount of organization. Right. You've got to feed people. You've got to keep them entertained. You've got to have discipline. You've, and uh, uh, all you've got to have outside support. You've got to have publicity. You've got to have legal uh, help. And all of this was organized by the Communist Party. And it was this level of organization that really uh, made the uh, strike successful. So let, let me read something to you. I have a, a, something here. This will set the stage. And tell me if this doesn't sound like Bessemer, Alabama. In those days, uh, you got a job and you just stuck with it. You didn't complain to management. Uh, you were just this faceless clog slaving like a robot, and then they speeded up the production line. That's what they did. Um, it, it, it was almost impossible for workers to go to the bathroom. They had no sick benefits, no overtime, no unemployment, no retirement. If the production line stopped, you didn't get paid. Mm -hmm. And when it started up again, you had to work that extra time and you didn't get overtime for it. Mm -hmm. So anytime a line stopped, you just, people didn't get 
paid. Uh, dead time, uh, it was called. Yeah. At, at that, this is this is prior to this strike that you're talking about. The Pinkerton agents had had thousands, uh, spent thousands of dollars on the Pinkerton agents that would come in and infiltrate the plants and work side by side. And if they suspected someone would be in a union, they would just immediately be fired. No recourse. No, in and often really in a brutal way. Uh, at that time, do the Duponts? Some of these names of these DeVosses, Duponts, Carnegies seem to kind of come up over and over again. They owned a quarter of all GM stock, strikes, uh, stocks. And even the legal system with Judge Black, which was the judge at the time that was making decisions on this, ended up having $100,000 worth of GM shares, which is like $3.7 million today. And he was the one that was making all the legal decisions associated with. So, this is the this is the foundation of what was going on, and then in this ten year period, what all of those things I mentioned were pretty much resolved, right? Right, right. I think that they, that, that Judge Black story is a, is a good little um, uh, sidelight to the role that communists played. So the uh, General Motors went to court and got an injunction. Uh, that the workers had to leave the plant. Uh, the injunction was issued by this uh, Judge Black. So the, the question, well, what do we do? I mean, the laws against us here, you know, they're telling us we have to, uh, to leave the plant. Uh, they're gonna bring in troops, you know, probably, or police, uh, private guards to enforce this injunction. So the communists uh, called in their, their legal help, uh, Maurice Sugar, Lee Pressman, and these were, left-wing lawyers who saw the law as uh, a tool that could be used to fur further struggle, not that, uh, that you had to capitulate to. So I forget whether it was Sugar or Pressman came up with this idea. I said, well, look at this, this Black is a uh, leading figure in Flint. Uh, maybe he owns a General Motors stock. So through their contacts, they investigated. And as you pointed out, sure enough, he owned hundreds of thousands of dollars of General Motors stock. Well, of course, this was compromising. He had a conflict of interest. How could he be ruling on the legality of this strike when he had a material interest in seeing this strike ended? So this exposure virtually invalidated the, this injunction and allowed the strike to, to go on. But it was uh, uh, just an indication of how this, uh, struggle was engaged on multiple levels. Tell, tell me about women in this strike. The importance of these mothers and these, and I, as I read your book, it was, it, I, it couldn't have succeeded without them. Do you think, am I correct? Absolutely, absolutely. The, uh, of course, I, I mean, again, all of these strikers had to be fed. They were fed by, they were fed by the communists. Right, right. Well, all of the pamphlets were the communists. All of the well, organizers were the essentially the small core. They, they, they were the leaders anyway. But, but leaders. obviously, it couldn't have been done without the, the mass of workers too. For, for example, the, they organized a, a kitchen uh, to cook meals for the uh, workers. Well, Dorothy Krauss was the woman who organized that uh, kitchen. Dorothy Krauss was the husband of Henry Krauss, who was the communist who put out the uh, paper and had worked with Mortimer in establishing the Federal Union in Cleveland and the key 
General Motors plant there. And Krauss brought in a, a left-wing chef from one of the leading restaurants in uh, Detroit to cook meals for the, for the strikers. But uh, of course you had to get the raw materials, you had to get the pots and pans, you had to get the vegetables, you had to do the cooking, you had to do the delivery. All of this required massive, uh, massive work. Uh, massive organization. Of, of course, then, then there were other problems too, like uh, the uh, there were rumors that uh, the men in the plant uh, had women, uh, that there was all kinds of shenanigans going on. This was done to demoralize the wives that were at home. And so mm -hmm. you had to have other women had to go out and visit the wives of the strikers and calm them down. Calm and... them down. This is this is not going out at all. You know, this is a disciplined strike. In fact, you should come and support us by picketing outside the plant. And so they organized this emergency brigade of women to picket outside the plant. And the, those pickets were often very important in terms of uh, dissuading and discouraging uh, Pinkertons and strike breakers from crossing the lines. Yeah. So yeah. Women, women were key, but again, it wasn't spontaneous. It was that uh, all along, uh, whenever the communist organized unions in auto, they organized what were called in those days Williams Auxiliaries, of uh, to try to get the the women involved in these struggles as well. And this, of course, uh, manifested itself in the sit-down strike. And. And you, you can't make this stuff up. They're in the one building and they said, we need to take over another, a fish or two or another, another building. And there was so much infiltration in all the Pinkertons and all of that, that they planted false information that says, we're gonna take over number six. And so all the police and everybody went to that building and it was a ruse they actually then diverted and took over the number two. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back when they got that plant. Right, right. And, and, and it was, that would not have been successful had the women not come and stopped the troops from coming into that plant. They were the ones that were at the door and it's like over our dead bodies kind of right. thing that I, I just, I, I think, I think it's it, an amazing it just it read like it was some crazy Halloween uh, uh, Hollywood script to, to see this and to think this was the actual events that occurred. You, you would think that uh, this would be the grist for a Hollywood uh, movie. You would think with all the topics that people search for to, uh, to to make into a movie, someone would stumble over this history and present it and present it fairly and accurately to people as a docudrama or, a, uh, or even a, just a, a drama. It's, it's so dramatic and uh, yet it doesn't happen. And that, that's, that's, that's an issue in itself. Well, the other, thing I would, the other thing I would add is that the, uh, the, this UAW organization is one thing. There are a number of other CIO unions that were organizing as well. This was inspirational to all of them, but you could find uh, almost a direct correlation between the left leadership or the communist leadership of the CIO union and the position of that union or local or whatever uh, regarding women in the workplace, women, uh, blacks, African-Americans, the more advanced the leadership was in terms of their politics, communist left wing, the better the policy of the union, the less advanced, 
the more corrupted it was. What, what, the old socialist organizers would always uh, try to downplay issues of race and sex and things of that kind because they, they, they could get in the way of going forward. The communists never compromised that in their leadership roles in the, in the unions. And then the, just the swelling of the unions became from that point on until we hit World War II. What happened, what happened then? Let, let, let me, if I could just back up just for a second, okay. Pat, on your other on the point on that um, kind of convoluted uh, seizure of uh, plants at, at the end of the strike. Uh, I, I think what should be pointed out as well is that uh, you know what, when the Cold War set in, the Communist Party was presented as uh, a criminal conspiracy, as secretive, as duplicitous, as uh, deceptive, etc. But let, look at the the way that strike unfolded, though at Fisher Body uh, Four, Fisher Body Two. That tactic only succeeded because it was conspiratorial, because it was secret, because. And, and the communists could do this because they were used to operating this way. They, it was illegal for them to operate openly. They had to learn how to operate uh, secretly, so to speak. And the same with organizing the union. When Mortimer went to Flint in 1936 to begin organizing, he could not recruit people openly. He could not sign up people openly. He had to meet them secretly in homes uh, with, uh, lit by candles so nobody else knew who was there. That's how repressive the situation was. So the communists knew how to operate in these repressive situations and successfully. And then during the 1936 strike, this practice of being able to operate so-called conspiratorially uh, worked in this uh, seizure of Fisher body plant number four, I think it was, right? <laughs> and I, I, so I, anyway, uh, it's, a, it's just, um, uh, I think important to point this out. Now let's go back to your question. Then, then what happened with, uh, with World War II, and uh, and of course, what, what happened with World War II was, uh, or after World War II, again, was the, the beginning of the Cold War, and uh, a concerted effort to drive the communists out of the labor movement, indeed drive them out of all aspects of American life. And, uh, what I would point out is that, to begin with, is that this anti-communist drive after World War II, well, first of all, I mean, this wasn't the first time there'd been an anti-communist drive. There was one after the uh, so-called Haymarket Riot of 1886. There was one during and right after World War I, the so-called Red Scare. So this is the third major wave of uh, anti-radicalism, anti-communism. But this wave after World War II uh, involved two things. One, I would say a half lie and a big lie, uh, or a half truth and a big lie. So the half truth was that the communists were a threat to American capitalism and American security. Well, this is a half truth, of course. This is, there's some truth to that. I mean, wherever the capitalists have been overthrown in the world, whether in Russia or in China or in Vietnam or in Cuba, uh, communists played a role in that, obviously, the right. leading role. And in this country, 
when workers have made advances as they did in the 1930s, organizing using, cutting into capitalist profits, again, capitalists were at the forefront. So there is some truth to this idea that communists were a threat, but not the threat that they were portrayed in uh, after World War II, as in, uh, after World War II. If the capitalists had, had agreed that the communists were a threat because they were uh, simply cutting into profits and organizing workers and giving them better wages and conditions, that, that would have been pretty damning. So that, that's not the threat they, they, uh, they promulgated. Instead, they wrapped this half truth into a big lie. And the big lie was that the Soviet Union wanted to take over the United States militarily, uh, that uh, this was the big threat. Um, now, this was preposterous. This was absolutely preposterous after World War II. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people during World War II, one third of its cities, one third of its industries. It was not about to invade anybody or engage in any military conflicts. And if you look closely at the history, you see the Soviet Union was very conciliatory after World War II. But the idea was, uh, the other preposterous thing is that the Communist Party was going to aid the Soviet Union in taking over this country by acting as spies and saboteurs and espionage and that their particular role in the labor movement was to take control of the labor movement, to use the labor movement to aid the Soviet Union's foreign policy aims. Again, this was a big lie. But wasn't it convenient? Yes, I mean, but it's important to point out that not a single American communist outside of the limited and rather dubious case of uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, there's not a single case of an American communist being convicted of espionage or spying or sabotage. It was a, a big, big, big lie. It, it, uh, was, nor, the, it, it was the original QAnon. Yeah, you know, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was with you know kids being abused in pizza basements and such. Right. Yeah, it, it, but uh, it was effective. Right, but it was very effective. And so starting with, and uh, really starting with the, the UAW, uh, the, uh, a coalition came together of uh, the leading capitalists, corporate leaders, the leading Republicans, leading Democrats, the Catholic Church and the Socialist Party to drive the communists out of the labor movement. And the first place they did this was uh, the UAW. And it was done through propaganda and publicity. It was done through congressional campaigns. It was done through legal action. Um, so, uh, I mean, well, just that, that, this, that goes me that, that gets me to this Mohawk Valley formula. I didn't know I didn't know anything about this. I was listening to an old Chomsky debate, and he said you really need to do some research of what they call the scientific approach based on propaganda for union breaking and strike breaking. And this was after the Remington ran strike in the you know, late 30s. Here, here's the plan that they said needs to be implemented. Discrediting union leaders, check. Frightening the public with threats of violence. They're going to you know, take over everything. Uh, using local police and vig vigilantes to intimidate strikers. Uh, forming associations of, quotes, loyal employees to influence the public debate. That sounds like the Twitter brigade in Amazon, you know, where they're 
these, these fake accounts. Uh, fortifying workplaces, employing large numbers of replacement workers and threatening to close the plant if it doesn't uh, go, go along with what they want. I, that's, tell me this isn't Jeff Bezos writing this memo. <laughs> Am right. I right? All right. You know, right. and- was the, was the blueprint used in the 1930s and it continues to be used. <laughs> it's, that's the, there it is right there. You know, that's from, that's that's the, you know, the, the memo we got, right? Uh, right, right. In, in, Rogers, in Roger's book and in the book, uh, Stalin over Wisconsin, the, uh, the role of uh, the attack on uh, UAW Local 248, um, the uh, Ellis Chalmers Local, is a kind of a keystone. Do you see that, Roger, as one of the critical turns, just as the sit-down strike was a critical turn to build the union movement? Was that, do you see that as a critical turn, turn in destroying it? It was a 240, 340-day strike, which they couldn't break. Right. They had to actually, they had to have uh, federal hearings. You can't even dream of. Would you, would you agree that's a turning point in? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I put it the same way, just as the General Motors was the turning point in the organization of mass uh, production industries. So the strike at Alice Chalmers was the turning point in the Cold War. And, and indeed, it's not just uh, poetic to say that either. The, uh, the, the hearings that led to the passage of the Taft-Hartley law, which was the main anti-communist labor law passed uh, in 1947, they occurred, the main example for passing that law was the investigation of the role of uh, the left in the Alice Chalmers strike. In other words, the Alice Chalmers strike provided the, the evidence for passing the Taft-Hartley Act. Plus, uh, the strike occurred after uh, Ruther had just become president of the UAW. And he uh, used that strike to uh, to bash the communists and to uh, to, uh, to really sell out the workers in order to get rid of the left in the in local 248. I interviewed when I was writing my book. I interviewed uh, Harold uh, Christoffel, who was the leader uh, president of local 248, a real hero, a man completely forgotten uh, for the most part among uh, the left and labor. But he said. You know, we could fight. And how many days was it again? 248 days? 300, 300. It was almost right. a year. He said, we could fight. We could fight the corporation. He said, we could fight the government. But we couldn't fight all three. We couldn't fight the corporation, the government, and our own union. He <laughs> said, that's, that's what finally, finally did us in. And then they, they brought the, these congressional anti-communist committees into Milwaukee, and they called Christoffel before the committee as well as other officers and they asked him if he was a communist. He said, no, he wasn't. And then they showed that he'd signed petitions for the communists for governor, et cetera, et cetera. So then they took this great heroic union leader who had built this union and sent him to prison uh, for five years for uh, so-called perjury. Uh, so this was a, another little just to reinforce your point of how 248 became the turning point in this uh, anti-communist movement. And it's, it's, the, it's, they killed the goose that laid the golden egg. It was these people and their passion and their organization. And then you have the corruption that comes in with our government and, and McCarthyism and red baiting. And then the union itself turned and used 
the the red baiting it from their perspective to consolidate their power and really it's never been the same since you right. know then it it it, it, yeah, it, it just, became dysfunctional and um there you go you know the anecdote from uh, my past uh growing up i went to high school with a, a guy named billy matthews and years later i ran into him and where i grew up there was a major General Motors foundry, which was given to General Motors after the war for probably a dollar, you know, for built for war production. And it employed everybody. Everybody in my block outside of the coal miners uh, were, were employed by General Motors foundry. So Billy became, I, I see him later, I lost touch with him and he says, oh man, he says, I remember you. You're the guy that told me in high school about Paul Robeson. And I said, I, I didn't know who Paul Robeson was when I was in high school, but anyway, he gave me credit for being this lefty and all this stuff. And, he, he then was the president of that local and he talked about and he'd done so much and they were going to shut it down and close it down but what struck me was we talked we were kindred spirits all those years and i really appreciated the respect he had for me because i was a kind of a socialist when i was in high school but he kept up bringing up walter ruther and there was this hero, heroic picture of walter ruther among uh, auto workers there was a piece of propaganda that just just clung. I mean, he said, oh, I, I learned about labor history and all this stuff. It, it, to me, it's tragic that a Christoffel went to jail and a Ruther became the iconic labor figure that he became. But I have a question, Roger. Mm -hmm. Do you connect Rutherism, let's call it Rutherism and that kind of opportunism uh, from that period to the situation of the auto workers today the uh, level of corruption, uh, they, in, they indicted uh, uh, the uh, former president, uh, Dennis Williams, mm -hmm. uh, last year, uh, the president before him is in trouble. Much of the, the union leadership is indicted, is pleaded guilty or taken a plea around corruption. Is this a direct result of that opportunism that occurred in the, in the uh, late 40s and early 50s uh, to kick the communists out? Yeah, I think that, not only that, I, th I think if you look at the UAW for the past 20 years, what, what are the main trends you see? First, a complete decline in uh, membership from right. 1.7 million to some 400,000, only a third of whom are auto workers. Second, the, the, the uh, destruction of or reduction of uh, wages and uh, conditions. After 2008, for example, they, they put in a uh, two-tier system where new workers made less than half of uh, older workers. Um, and parts companies like Delphi, they reduced the wages by over 50%. And then corruption, as, uh, as Greg pointed out uh, two years ago, the Justice Department filed charges, indicted 12 officers of the UAW, including two former presidents for racketeering, embezzlement, uh, of over $1.7 million. I forget what, what exactly, maybe it was, no, it was nearly $17 million. So, uh, I mean, I, th I think you, would this have happened if you had a leadership that believed that the most important thing in the world was class struggle, was fighting right. for the interests of workers? No. What with Walter Ruther you got was the beginning of this idea, again, that workers benefit when the corporations benefit. Uh, the corporations benefit when the workers benefit, labor management cooperation. And of course, once you start down this path, 
then uh, what do you do when the plant, when the corporation wants to move uh, production to Mexico? What do you want to do when they say in order to survive, we have to cut wages? Uh, it's a very short step from this kind of collaboration to collaboration on corruption. Right. And uh, so once you move away from this class struggle unionism to class cooperation unionism, it's a very slippery slope from there to corruption. And uh, it's not only in the UAW you can see this, you can see this in other unions as well. And you started by the, the so few strikes, you know, that are occurring. Right. And look at what just happened, uh, was it last week or the week before with the Ford plant? Uh, Ford is making EVs, electric vehicles. And in negotiation with the union, the union gave up the tiered uh, pay system, they gave up their medicals, they gave up their you know wages, they said all we want is job security, right. of which Ford agreed in their last. So what did they do? They just announced they're moving the production down to Mexico. Right. Okay, well, what are you going to do? Send them a you know, send them a dirty email, uh, you know, yell at them on Twitter, you know, you, right. remember, how, how, remember about, how about a nice sit down strike? <laughs> remember the, back the, when, uh, back, back when, when they, they opened up the two tier system, when they uh, established that, when that uh, the union leadership gave that up, we're going to have two tiers now, the starting tier, I did a back of an envelope calculation for an article I was writing. And it turns out the starting tier with that, with that agreement was exactly the pay that Henry Ford was giving you know, back in his time when he started mass production in Ford. Can you imagine a hundred years later, more than a hundred, well, a hundred years later, auto workers who were organized were making no more as a starting wage than they were at the time when Henry Ford, out of the goodness of his heart, paid these workers uh, what he paid. It's shocking, it's shocking. It's, Despairing. Right. Well, and remember that the uh, these struggles of the 1930s succeeded during a time of economic depression. Even in 1933, when the auto workers went on strike, they were able to reverse some wage cuts, and uh, and and the great sit-down strike was able to succeed, even though there were still thousands and thousands of workers unemployed, and when the employers were crying poverty. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, believe me, General Motors was in worse shape in the 1930s than they are today. Right, <laughs> and right. they're still crying poverty. Well, Roger, this has just been an absolute pleasure for me. And I, as I said in the opening, I knew so little of this and I'm a pretty bright guy and I know history and I, I, this is just off my radar. This, and this, go ahead. This is the original 1986 version paperback version of Roger's book, which has been long out of print, but is now available today from international publishers, and I'm sure from other bookstores and other sources, but it's well worth a read, and I think this captured some of the flavor of the book, but there's much, much more in the book. It's just a delight to read, and it's a, a pioneering effort in correcting the historical record. And, the, and I, 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 want to make another, so I want to make another comment about the book it's my gosh you've got 45 pages of footnotes and references and, and you know interviews how long did it take you to put this together i your your the foundation you just don't make stuff up you say and here's the data and here's the information it's so pl pleasant to see a book written like that 
Well, thank you. It took years and years, but again, I knew what I was doing was going against the grain of the existing history that was out there, and I had to prove what I was saying. So I, I, did, I put did, the work in. Did you ever get any negative feedback from your elevating, you know, the um, the the shedding light on the the uh, positive influence of the communists? Did this ever? affect you professionally as you're in your professorship or work environment? Uh, well, I guess you could say that I, I was, uh, I wrote this book while I was at uh, Cornell University and the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And uh, after the book came out, even though a book was supposed to be enough for tenure, even though I won uh, teaching awards, even though I started a program and uh, union leadership, I was uh, denied tenure, and then for years could not find uh, another academic job. So uh, I don't have uh, concrete proof that it was because of this book, but I suspect that that was the main reason. It was because well, of the book, I'll say it. <laughs> you're, you're in good company with Cornell West. <laughs> the same thing. Well, thank you so much, Roger. And again, I appreciate your time. And uh, this has been wonderful. And I think one of the better better ones we've done, Greg. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. I quite agree. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, the thanks is all mine. <laughs> all right. Bye. -bye. <laughs>